0: on today's episode.
1: Today, over 90% of the global GDP is affected one way or another by lockdowns. Virtually overnight, we found ourselves in what is probably going to be the deepest recession in modern times. The scale of the decline in economic activity is unprecedented, as is the speed. That is the bad news, but that is also the more immediate news. The economic impact will feel that much worse in April.
0: Welcome to the Active Share, podcast that explores less obvious investing insights in a world that's always changing. I'm your host, Hugo Scott-Gall. With me, I have Camilla Holtzheimer-Cruz, who is an analyst on our healthcare team. She has a PhD in infectious diseases, extremely relevant now. Also, with me is Olga Bittell, our statist and economist, Camilla, hi, and Olga, hi.
2: Hi, hello.
0: So, Camilla, let, let's start with you. Let's start with a question around around the disease. What is it we do know and what is it we don't know and would really like to know about this disease?
2: That's a good question. And I, I must say that over the number of months that we, we now have seen the virus, this is a new virus to us, so so we obviously has a lot to learn, but... Over the, the the past couple of months, we have learned a great deal about the virus. We know now better how it infects people. Uh, we know more about the infection rate. We know more about the mortality rate. We know more about how it interacts with with humans who are most susceptible and who are less susceptible. And that is extremely valuable knowledge to us in protecting those that are more vulnerable to this virus. And we can then direct the the effort in hospitals and, and, and also on a community level to protect those that are more vulnerable. But, of course, as we go, we learn more and more about the virus. There is a lot of things that we, we, we need to know more about. We need to know more sort of how many of us that, that truly has been affected or, or are infected and what is driving the disease, really. And I believe that we'll learn a lot more about that in the next coming uh, months or so. And that information will then bring more clarity on, on the mortality rate because that is that is also somewhat unclear at the moment. So so there's it's a lot of things that we know, but there's, of course, a lot of things that we, will, we are learning along the way.
0: Okay, so let's talk a bit about infection rates and mortality rates. Tough things to talk about, but unfortunately we have to, and they're very important. So let's go around the world a bit. Let's just start with Europe. So just in terms of Europe, what are we seeing let's let's do the the good news first. What are we seeing that's encouraging with regard to infection rates and indeed mortality rates across europe?
2: If we start on on the positive front we are we are seeing that Europe has seems to have
0: passed the the peak here the The
2: second derivative of new cases has been slowing. That's very, very positive. The situation is still very difficult in, in Europe. I, I don't want to, under, to underestimate that, but, but it seems to be going in, in the right direction. On an even more positive note in China, life seems to slowly be returning to, to normal. We have seen that the, the number of new cases in China has been very close to zero over a, a long period of time now, and it seems to be sustainable. So that's also very positive in the U.S. This situation is likely to get a lot worse before it gets better. We've seen the number of new cases increase significantly over the last couple of days. This is partly, however, in supported note. This is partly due to that we are catching up on testing, and I believe that this catch-up phase is likely to impact and inflate the numbers in the next coming days or so. So, I believe the next next week, ten days, will be very important to to uh, to see how the number of new cases are are evolving.
0: And when you think about the differences. In say, mortality rate, are those differences explainable when you look at how different countries record the cause of death? When you look at social factors like number of people in a household, average age in a country, and I'm sure there are other factors as well. Once we hmm. take all those into account, are we seeing, are we seeing a sort right. of consistent mortality rate? Is it, is it the differences are explained or are they unexplained?
2: Right, that's a great question. So when it comes to mortality rate, what we're seeing, yes, the number are a little bit all over the place at the moment, and it will take some time before we uh, have a more an exact idea of what the true mortality rate. But in the countries that has done a broad testing, the mortality rate is about 0.7%. The more exact mortality rate we won't find out until we have done serology testing. The so FDA has just approved one of those kits, and I believe that we will learn a lot more about the mortality rate and how Many of us that actually got infected by the virus over the next couple of months or so. As you know, the testing of active cases has been somewhat limited for a number of reasons. We probably only capture uh, the severe, maybe moderate cases. And uh, so we need to do the serology testing to find out the true number of infected cases. And then we can calculate the exact infection rate and the mortality rate. But you make a very good point that both infection rate and mortality rate are highly susceptible to both the environment or various environmental factors and our behavior. So we are likely to see, even when we have all the numbers on the, on the table, we're likely to see that both the infection rate and mortality rate will be different in different countries, also in different regions, which reflect that different countries, the, the population has a different health status. The age of, of the population, of course, uh, very uh, important. And also our healthcare system is very important and it's very different in different countries. So, we are likely to see a variety in uh, in both infection rate and mortality rates, but we'll have a a lot better picture of this, I would say, in the next uh,
0: couple of months or so. Sure. But before we get on to the science side, just a couple more questions around one around seasonality. Is there enough evidence Mm -hmm. to say actually that that the virus doesn't do well outside of certain temperature bands or certainly on the warmer Mm -hmm. side? And the follow on from that is if it's the case that it does better in winter conditions than summer conditions, should we expect it to move out to the southern hemisphere for the winter there and therefore potentially still rolling around the world following the season?
2: Right. That's also a very good question. So, like I said, so the infection rate of the virus depends on you think the two things, environmental factors and our behaviour. So on the environmental front, I would say that it's reasonable to think that this virus is impacted by a seasonality effect. This is what we see with, with all other coronaviruses, and it basically boils down to the composition of the virus. Coronaviruses are, are surrounded by a lipid envelope that makes them all very sensitive to environmental factors, such as temperature and humidity. However, to what extent this virus is impacted by temperature and humidity is at the moment unclear. It also depends on, on the viral load in the society. So if you have a lot of virus spreading, a lot of infected people in the society, of course, the impact of the environment will be on a relative aspect less. So that's why the social distancing aspect becomes such an important tool in order to curb the curve. And then to your question about the, the Southern Hemisphere and how that would be impacted. If we just looked on, on the pattern for flu influenza, we do see that approximately around sort of May timeframe, the cases of, of influenza start to increase in the Southern Hemisphere. So I find it sort of reasonable to believe that while maybe the temperature in the Northern Hemisphere will be helping us in the next coming months or so, it will be a, a, a headwind on, on the, in the southern hemisphere. It will probably help the virus to, to spread. So, so that's how I see it at the moment.
0: Okay, so I want to put your brains now on the science side. Could you talk to likely progress on the vaccine front? And then we should mm-hmm. I think also yeah. talk about the treatment side. And then mm-hmm. after, that, after that, I want to ask you about immunity and testing for immunity. So let's, let's kick off with just kind of where we are and what would be a likely trajectory for a to a successful vaccine?
2: Right. So we're working on a number of different disease-modifying treatments as well as a number of vaccine candidates. So if we start with the vaccine development, this is the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal to, is to develop a vaccine that we can use on the broader population. There are several different candidates that have started clinical trials or are about to start clinical trials, and I believe we will have the first set of data of this phase one trial during the summer, and hopefully we will have an approved vaccine sometimes early next year. However, manufacturing is a huge bottleneck when it comes to vaccine, so I don't think that we will have a vaccine available for the broader population until fall twenty twenty one and that's eighteen months out but until then, we are working on building out our therapeutic drug tool set, if you wish. There are a number of different candidates in development. They basically fall into three buckets. We have the antivirals, so that's the chloroquine, the hydroxychloroquine, as well as Gilead, and Desivir. So these are all antivirus that inhibits the production of new viruses in the body. And then the second bucket is neutralized antibodies, or what is also called antibody cocktail therapy. So here, uh, Regeneron, among others, are advancing, and there are, and these neutralizing antibodies, they they also work directly on the virus, basically killing the virus. The third bucket, they are anti-inflammatory drugs. Here we're trying a number of available drugs, including Actembrex, Stara, to see if they can alleviate the inflammation in the the lungs. This is a huge problem, in particular for patients with severe symptoms. At the moment, everything's on the table. We have we're trying different drugs, we're trying different combinations, different settings, and I believe over the next weeks, months, we will have a, a lot better picture on what additional therapeutic tools we can use and how to use it, with the goal of having a vaccine available for the broader population in the next, I would say, 18 months or so.
0: Is there anything particularly challenging about this virus when it comes to developing a vaccine? Is that a fairly normal timeline?
2: Doing it. I would say this is a rather fast time timeline, given that we this is a new virus, it's the coronavirus. So we don't really have everything up and running. So, for example, for a new influenza virus, we have all the we have the platform ready, so we can make some tweaks to already available vaccines, and therefore we can we can produce them uh, relatively quickly. We don't have that platform for coronaviruses. That's why it takes a little bit longer time than for a normal influenza virus, but I would say that it's still relatively fast. I mean a lot of people are working, a lot of scientists are working literally day and night twenty four seven to get a vaccine out as quickly as possible.
0: I guess one of the things we hear at the moment is that is, is this an effect of this crisis could be deglobalizing. It sounds like the world of medicine is actually globalizing to try and fight this. Is that right?
2: Right. I mean, this is a global problem. Everybody is engaged in it. Everybody very. There's a lot of stake here. So so everybody's pitching in. Everybody's working really hard. I think that we see how global the science world is in a situation like this.
0: Final question to you really around social distancing. Mm-hmm. From what we've seen so far, it's kind of working, isn't it? Is that a fair conclusion? Mm.
2: So, yes. I think that what we've seen so far, both from Wuhan from China, also from from previous pandemics, and this go all the way back to the 14th century. So we know that, that social distancing is highly impactful in reducing the spread of a virus. In Wuhan, we saw, for, for this virus particularly, that after one month of social distancing, the infection rate decreased from about 4 to 0.3, with 1 being the target but the impact of social distancing will of course be different in in different countries, in different regions, because we do things differently. But it it, it at least gives us an indication that the effect, there is a a great effect of social distancing on reducing the spread of the virus.
0: Okay, with that, I think we're going to pivot to Olga. Olga, social distancing, as Camilla said, is is working, but it's coming with substantial damage to economies. Could you talk about the economic outlook as, as you see it, I guess by geography and really just by by quarters. What do you see as the hit to economies here?
1: Sure, Hugo, you're absolutely right. The immediate economic impact of us trying to overcome this virus and specifically introducing measures such as social distancing and physical distancing and shutting down virtually entire sectors and regions of the global economy, such that today over 90% of the global GDP is affected one way or another by lockdowns, means that virtually overnight, we found ourselves in what is probably going to be the deepest recession in modern times the scale of the decline in economic activity is unprecedented, as is the speed. That is the bad news, but that is also the more immediate news. And as Camilla said, to the extent that the worst in terms of the number of cases in the U.S. is yet to come over the next couple of days, the economic impact will feel that much worse in April. So with that the expectation, what we expect so far, and this is this is very preliminary because nothing like this has happened before in, in many, many years from an economic standpoint. We'll start with China, which is where the impact was first felt and where economic activity bore the brunt of that impact in the first quarter of this year. We expect most of the recessionary impact in China to be concentrating in the first quarter with the resulting declines in economic activity, sequential and year-on-year declines on the order of 20 to 30%, if not more. Of course, we'll know more when the final numbers for first quarter GDP are published, but so far what we've seen from the industrial production data and the retail sales data suggests those orders of magnitude in terms of the decline. Moving over to Europe and then ultimately to the U.S., the shutdowns began in Europe in early to mid-March, with U.S. quickly following by late March. So the impacts are likely to be staggered in that order. With both jurisdictions are going to have a decline in the first quarter of GDP of probably on the order of 3 to 6% annualized rate. And, of course, these numbers will grow very rapidly in the second quarter of this year, the quarter that we're about to start with the brunt of the negative impact and the decline concentrated in April and early parts of May. So the sequential annualized rates of decline that we're now expecting are probably going to be on the order of 20 to 50% in Europe and the U.S. in the second quarter of this year, followed by hopefully a gradual resumption of economic activity starting in May. That is what's currently in the forecast.
0: And I guess the sensitivity there is that the economic damage is so significant that if starting up again, gradually opening up in the economies, if that happened a month later, the damage done in the meantime is really quite substantial, isn't it? Absolutely. So the
1: damage here is nonlinear, and so the numbers would be progressively worse if the resumption of activity were to be postponed by another month or even two. At the same time, what we're seeing from social distancing, what Camilla just talked about, the signs there are encouraging. So we've seen the resumption of activity in China uh, progressing quite nicely. We are expecting a similar pattern of gradual resumption of activity in Europe, perhaps as early as the second half of April, and with the U.S. following perhaps in early to mid-May. That would be the base case for now, although, as I said, April is going to feel very, very bad. A critical component of this will be how well households and small and medium-sized businesses are able to weather this storm. So the duration of the shutdown is really critical.
0: Yeah, and the other critical thing, which we haven't thought about yet, is government aid, fiscal stimulus, fiscal packages. Could you give us your thoughts around how big those are? Are they enough? really tough question to ask you. I know I'm putting you on the spot, but is it enough and will it be able to get to the right places where it's needed most?
1: Hugo, that's absolutely the right questions right now. I would say that is the number one critical question. What we've seen so far around the world is fiscal support packages on the order of 10 to 30 percent of GDP. And the crucial point here is that these packages will be made larger if necessary. That is really very important. This is an unprecedented level of support. Even in the great financial crisis of 08-09, we have not seen numbers anywhere near comparable to what we're experiencing now, to what is being rolled out on almost a daily basis. Now that these support measures are enacted both in Europe and the U.S., the next critical part of this is how effectively these measures are being communicated to the broader public how easily these measures can be implemented and operationalized and how quickly they can they can be enforced and, and proliferated through the economy. So specifically, how easily is it for households and the less affluent households to understand what relief they can get, how quickly they can get paychecks, what relief they can get on their mortgages, on their loans, on other outstanding debt, etc.? For small businesses, the same idea. Before we really start laying off workers in mass, and we've already seen initial jobs claims in the U.S. skyrocket in the last couple of weeks, are we really going to extend the support to small and medium-sized businesses such that it's easy to access, it's quick, there are very few, if any, conditionals, conditionalities attached to it? and very little stigma, and so how easily is it going to be for our economies to bridge this, what is effectively a forced, unpaid vacation, and turn this into at least a partially paid vacation, if I can use that phrase. That will really determine the speed and pace and slope of the recovery as we look to the economic activity resuming post the shutdowns.
0: And as you said, the recovery based on, uh, on on the base case that we see should be, in the same way it's hard six months ago to imagine how sharp of a downturn we're seeing, we just, you know, we haven't seen it uh, like this before outside, of, really outside of, war, outside of wartime, the slope of the recovery should be equally sharp as well. Would you, would you agree with that?
1: Absolutely. That's, in fact, this is exactly what is being modeled right now, not just by us, but broader group, we're seeing very similar patterns of recovery being hoped for and and estimated. And the the challenge here is really to separate the levels of GDP versus the sequential growth rates. So when we talk about the very sharp recoveries, we are expecting, just to give you a sense, quarter-on-quarter sequential growth in GDP in the U.S. and in Europe in double digits in the second half of this year. That, too, will be unprecedented if it materializes. However, that doesn't mean that the level of output will return to anywhere near the pre-crisis levels by the end of the year. In fact, most jurisdictions around the world are going to record a recession for this year. And so even with these very, very rapid sequential quarter-on-quarter improvements and growth rates, we are not expecting to return to pre-crisis levels of output for at least two years. And of course, the way the stimulus support and the the way fiscal support gets implemented will have a critical impact on whether we can return to all of the output lost and how quickly we can get there, whether it takes us
0: one year or three years. Of course, of course. Well, look, I think we will finish it there. I want to say All done, Camilla. Thank you very much for all of that. Very, very informative, I hope. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's episode of The Active Share. To hear additional insights from William Blair Investment Management, visit us at blog.williamblair.com. The Active Share is available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and TuneIn. For questions, comments or topics you'd like to hear discussed, email us at podcastim at williamblair.com.
3: This content is for informational and educational purposes only and is not intended as investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any security or to adopt any investment strategy. Investment advice and recommendations can be provided only after careful consideration of investors' objectives, guidelines, and restrictions. The views and opinions expressed are those of the speakers as of the date of this recording are subject to change without notice as economic and market conditions dictate and may not reflect the views and opinions of other investment teams within William Blair Investment Management. Factual information has been obtained from sources we believe to be reliable, but its accuracy, completeness, or interpretation cannot be guaranteed. Any discussion of particular topics is not meant to be comprehensive and may be subject to change. This material may include forecasts, estimates, outlooks, projections, and other forward-looking statements. Due to a variety of factors, actual events may differ significantly from those presented. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principal. Any investment or strategy mentioned herein may not be suitable for every investor. References to specific companies are for illustrative purposes only and should not be construed as investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any security. William Blair Investment Management may or may not own any securities of the companies referenced. It should not be assumed that any investment in the companies referenced was or will be profitable.